Well, shalom, everyone. This is Dina Dye here, along with my co-host, Jeff Morton. Are you with us, Jeff? Everybody. Uh, welcome to our show. This is Returning to Eden, and uh, our show tonight is going to be 50 minutes because we have a very special guest, uh, Dr. John Walton. His material has really significantly influenced my own understanding of the scripture and actually provided some of the inspiration for my book. So Dr. Walton is a professor of Old Testament studies at Wheaton College. He served on the faculty there since 2001. He teaches courses in Hebrew grammar and exegesis, Old Testament historical literature, uh, a number of books of the Bible, but Genesis is his particular area of interest. And he also teaches history in the background of the ancient Near East world, which we'll be talking about some tonight. He's the general editor of the five-volume series, the Zondervan Illustrated Bible Backgrounds Commentary Set of the Old Testament. Now there's a mouthful. And I want to encourage you to go out and purchase that. Uh, he's written numerous books and articles, too many to list here. Jeff and I really love The Lost World of Genesis 1 and The Lost World of Adam and Eve. And we've been promoting that on the show. And right now, all my colleagues are jealous uh, because we consider him to be the rock star of biblical proportions. And one of my colleagues asked if she could cook dinner for him so she could have a mealtime discussion. Anyways, welcome, Dr. Walton. Are you with us? Professor Walton, are you there? It's great Dr. to be here, Dina. Okay. All right. We made it. We always have a technical issue every week, so it's completely normal. <laughs> um, I just want you to be free to take as long as you need to with your answers, and uh, we really appreciate your joining us tonight. Absolutely. Well, I'm looking forward to our time. Okay. So I'm going to start with a pretty easy question here, but I think our viewers are not really familiar with you. So, you know, you often say that the Bible was not written to us but it was written for us. So for those who've never heard that concept, uh, could you explain what you mean by that? Sure, I'd love to. Uh, you know, we have to think about the Bible as it's written, and it's written in Hebrew, and it's written by Israelite authors to Israelite audiences. Therefore, not only is it in their language, but it is oriented toward their culture. So that's what I mean, that it's not written to us. It's a communication between Israelites, and we're kind of reading their mail over their shoulder. But in contrast, it is written for us, and that's recognizing the fact that this is God's word. And as God's word, it is intended for all people of all time to benefit from. And so it's for us, and we have to try to understand the message that transcends the text itself at the same time recognizing that that text is in a context. And, you know, I, I think, sorry, Dina, go ahead. oh, yeah, I'm sorry I interrupted. <clears throat> I think a lot of people struggle with the ancient Near East world because it's filled with gods and goddesses, and they see that as fables and myths, and a lot of people, uh, today we interpret myths as being something that's not true. And then if a scholar claims that Israel is just a reflection of the culture, and simply copied their traditions, people kind of, that's a sort of a fear thing. So can you talk about that? That's sort of problematic for people. I can understand that. The contrast that I draw is that um, I do not suggest that the Bible, the Israelite authors, I don't suggest that they are indebted to 
pieces of ancient Near Eastern literature, as if they're just kind of reshaping the mythology that they encounter in that world. Instead of being indebted to pieces of literature, I think of them as embedded in their world. Um, we can think of even Christian authors today who write uh, spiritual, inspirational things, and they are embedded in this century, in this time, and that's going to reflect itself in their writing. So uh, Israel is not, or I should say the Bible is not culture-free. The Bible is embedded in a world, and therefore even when they are uh, taking a position that's very different from that world, that conversation is still taking place in that world. Okay, Jeff, why don't you go ahead with the, you have a number of questions. Well, I, I first of all, I'm thrilled to have you on our program. Uh, and I'm just delighted to, uh, you know, I got to tell you, I, I read your book a while ago, and I, I kind of didn't get some of the composition of it, some of your propositions. Uh, but I've been I've read it twice since the, the initial reading. And, uh, you know, it seems to me that your book continues a series of paradigm shifts away from a lot of the traditional concepts that we in our culture have had the last couple of hundred years. And so your book offers kind of like a puzzle piece of some of the things that I have gleaned over the last 10 years. I am grateful for your books. I want to tell you that up front. They are they are life changing. But one of my questions as we enjoy your company tonight is <clears throat> in the lost world and, and folks, many of you, we've been promoting this book. Now, this is our eighth show. I'll get the book and read it. You'll understand a lot of what we're going to discuss tonight. In the lost world of Genesis one, you present two words, functional and material. Can you explain both as they relate to the book to our audience? Sure. I'd love to, you know, as, as time has gone on and I present this material, all around the world, all across the country. And when you do that, you get to keep sh shaping uh, the, the terms you use and the ways you talk about them. Um, the, what I'm talking about with function and material is a question of what kind of account is this? I think that as time has gone on, I've preferred to use the word order rather than functional, although I still stand by the idea that it's functional in nature. But the idea that Genesis is Genesis 1 is more interested in the ordering of the cosmos than in the material uh, shaping, manufacturing of the cosmos. Um, so the idea that uh, we have um, a role and a purpose in an ordered world, that's what's behind the word function. One of the ways I've been describing it more recently is the difference between a house story and a home story. You can talk about building a house and that's all the, the foundation and the roof and the walls and the plumbing and the air conditioning and the electricity. That's a house story. And that's an important origin story. But there's also an origin story, which is a home story, which talks about how people move in and settle in and make it their place and live there. And that's also an important origin story. In the end, though, I think that we're not so much dealing with a cosmic origin story as much as we're dealing with a cosmic identity story. This is what the world around us is. 
And that's and how it works for us. And that's what I'm getting at when I use the word function or order. That's the home story, how it works for us, as opposed to the material, which is the house story and how the structure got built. Does that help a little? Yes. In fact, yeah. we, we did a show on order uh, and you've explained that quite well. Dina, go ahead. No, I just wanted to. Yeah, I, I like that concept of order. Sure. Of course, that makes me think of, you know, a finished temple and and bring, you know, bringing order out of chaos. So thanks for clarifying. And that's yeah. the concept that when we talk about. So what purpose was God ordering the cosmos for? He was ordering it to be a place where he would dwell. And that's that's that order and purpose piece. Well, we tend to look at those things in a very abstract manner in our culture, but uh, in their culture, this would not have been something that needed to be explained for the most part. Would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. You know, you read any uh, any ancient Near Eastern texts that talk about the cosmos, uh, and it doesn't even have to be a creation text. It could be wisdom literature or incantations or, or even historical inscriptions, and, and they talk about the God ordering the cosmos. For them, ordering is the act of creation. Because to them, something didn't exist when it was not ordered and had no purpose. When it's given a role and a purpose in an ordered system, now it exists. And that's just very different from how we think. But it's how everybody in the ancient world thought. So when we're thinking about uh, tohu, vavohu, and that, you've talked about that as sort of the non-ordered world. So what would be the difference then? You've got the ordered, the non-ordered, and the chaos. Could, could you explain that? Okay. Non-ordered is just that God hasn't set it up yet. He's preparing. He's working at it. Um, and he's doing it in his time, in his way. Uh, I usually use the analogy of when you move into a new place, you've got boxes all over and, and nothing's ordered, nothing's set up to work the way that it should. And gradually over time, you unpack the boxes and you bring order to your home and then and you're preparing it to live there. And that's that ordering process. That's why I prefer to use non-order instead of chaos. Okay. Think of chaos as as bad, as negative, even as evil. Right. Not order is neutral. It's just not ordered yet. Okay. Um, Jeff, you want to, you've got another question there. Well, in all of your books, uh, Professor Walton, you, 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 uh, you preface all of your chapters by offering a proposition, which yeah. I thought was, I thought that was kind of good because it's, it's generous in, in a, in a way. Uh, that's the way I felt when I was reading your books. I'm glad <clears throat> you're, um, the debate and the discussion, how wide is that door open with regard to the lost world of Genesis? How are people receiving your material? You've, you've written this book now a few years. How, how is it being received? Well, in the circles where I present this material, it's received extremely well. But, of course, the people who don't like it don't invite me. <laughs> I understand that one. We know that one. <laughs> so that's anecdotal then because, you know. <laughs> Oh, but yeah, places where I present, and I present a lot all over the place, uh, it's received very well. That doesn't mean, I mean, don't misunderstand, that doesn't mean that everybody accepts everything I say. You know, people have questions. Uh, people sometimes have a little bit of pushback. Sometimes they like some parts and not other parts. That's fine. My job is to put information on the table. 
Because if we don't have the information out in front of us to consider, we never make any progress at all. And, and uh, j- just to capstone that, I one of the reasons when I approached uh, Dr. Dina or Di- Diana, Dina with this whole concept of doing this show was be- the, the value of the information. Uh, that to me is critical in our understanding of the scriptures. And you seem to, like I said earlier, you fit a dynamic into a puzzle that's that's been kind of wandering around for 600 years or so. I, I'm just thrilled to be talking about this, but many people in the pews are in our generation, particularly are hungry or either apathetic. You offer a game changer, an entire dynamic that's not talked about in most of the churches. In fact, any church I've ever been in. What do you see happening to those people who get your material? What, what, what's been the outcome? Well, the, when they hear the material and start to accept some of the premises, of course, that opens up conversations. And sometimes those conversations are problematic. Uh, sometimes they're, they're very challenging. But it, if the material is couched carefully in ways that people understand how this can help us get to the authoritative message of the text, I find that that's a good basis for continuing conversation. Absolutely. Dina, did you have uh, yeah, something you I- to say there? Um, I wondered if you wouldn't mind sharing a little bit of your sort of your personal journey of how you came to understand uh, order versus science. I'm not sure if that's the proper comparison, but where along your journey did it, you know, the light bulb go on and this all began to make sense to you? Yeah, well, I was raised in a context that was uh, uh, conservative, Christian and kind of by default, young earth. There weren't a lot of choices back then in the Jurassic age. Oh, I mean, back, yeah. <laughs> back yes, that's good. And, uh, and so that's, that's kind of how I was raised. And, uh, and really all through my education and early into my teaching career, I maintained that just because I didn't have anything else to, any other way to put it together. Um, I was studying Genesis. Of course, I was studying uh, Hebrew text. I was learning consistent hermeneutics. I was studying the ancient Near East and learning all about that. But it just wasn't coming together to make a coherent opinion or, or interpretation. And actually, it happened in the late 90s. I was in a class uh, giving a lecture uh, to a number of Hebrew students who were talking about Genesis. And I asked a question to the students in just a particular way that I hadn't phrased it before. And just asking that question suddenly just popped things into place. It's like they snapped to grid. Mm, And all of the Hebrew and all of the Genesis stuff and all of the ancient Near East and all of the theology and all the hermeneutics just kind of snapped into place. And I I just had a stunned look on my face of silence for, (laughs) for a number of seconds or, you know, whatever. And the students are, what's going on? You know, is he, is he yes. having you know, a seizure of some sort? And, and I said, oh, my goodness. Wow. <laughs> Think about this. And, and we just started, you know, right there in class, um, hashing it out and talking about the issues. And, um, yeah, and so it happened very suddenly. But the idea of I had all the preparation in place. Right. Yeah. You know, and that's what made it possible for everything to just kind of snap to grid. 
Wow. And, you know, that's really important. I think people forget that. They, you know, they want instant information, but if you've got to lay the groundwork and the foundation first Absolutely. before those things come together. So I, when I'm presenting, I often tell people, you don't need to make your mind up tonight or tomorrow or next week. This is just information to begin processing. Um, and sometimes it'll take a long time to do that. Amen. Well, so one of my colleagues asked, um, the, when did the Bible formally begin to be treated as a science book? And did the, the great scientists of the past, did they see the Bible separate from science? When did all, all that start to happen? Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm really not a, a history of science kind of expert, um, but I've heard people talk about it. And lots of those de um, developments took place in the aftermath of the Enlightenment. But okay. its its roots go back before that. But the Enlightenment was especially especially an important time uh, where people wanted to start seeing the Bible in more scientific terms. You know, uh, I really. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. That's my best shot at it. Yeah. Okay. I, I really liked your comparison that you made talking. You know, the description of the heavens. You know, looking at it from Van Gogh or Van Gogh is his actual name, or looking at it from the Hubble telescope. Like you're looking at the exact same thing, but, you know, one with imagination and one with a telescope. I, I really liked that uh, that picture. Right. I mean, the idea that we have to reconstruct something scientific behind everything that we read in the Bible, I think, is a misguided concept. The authority is in the narrator and the mm -hmm. narrator's interpretation is what carries authority. It's not the events themselves. It's not the people uh, in the events. It's the narrator's interpretation because that's where God has invested his Holy Spirit in giving them authority. So I think we overrate kind of reconstruction and scientific understanding. And that goes to that just this dogmatic literalism of the Bible. It kind of goes to my next question a little bit. As you've talked about how uh, saddened you've been, um, how, how little exposure and understanding Christians have to the Old Testament. So I often hear, you know, the Bible, if it isn't in the Bible, it's not relevant. Um, basically, the Old Testament has been done away with and it's irrelevant. So uh, so what's your response to that? And then every, everything has to be so literal. They have a hard time accepting that the stories uh, in their culture and time are not necessarily literal. Yeah. Um, you know, literal is an awfully tough word to deal with because lots of people have lots of different ideas about it. Basically, I think that we have to kind of shift our focus and say, we want to try to understand the Bible the way that the author understood it and the way he expected his audience to understand it. Uh, he could have used metaphors. He could have used parables. He could have used all sorts of rhetorical devices. We have to track with the author. That's where the authority is. Um, the Old Testament, of course, can can never be considered irrelevant because it's God's word. And right. people feel like they can get along without it, but they can't. Right. And this is one of the ways that we know God and we know his plans, we know his purposes, and we can track with him. And so if, if the whole idea is for us to participate with God in what he is doing, then we have to get the long view of what he's doing. I think lots of times people just don't know what to do with the Old Testament. They read Leviticus and they're baffled. They right. read you know, prophecies about 
nations that haven't existed for thousands of years and they wonder, what could this mean to me? And what we really need is a refreshing introduction to how to read the Old Testament so that we get God's word from it. And I've been trying to do a lot of writing in that area. Amen. Jeff? Well, I was, uh, you know, one of the things that I did here in my home, I had a Bible study for three years here, a bunch of men. We got together every Wednesday night, and they're still doing it. But we went through a whole series on ancient Near East uh, uh, treaty law because I think um, it's it's one of the dynamics that you you don't hear in the Christian world. I certainly didn't all the while. I've I've been uh, sitting in the churches, but uh, for the most part, without that component, it's it's kind of hard for the average believer to kind of reconnect to the world that Moses was writing in, or the world that that uh, David or what whoever the writer was. We have to see the authority of their world from their perspective because that's when God purposed it to to be communicated to us. So you have spent a, a lot of time trying to develop that in your books because it, it's a component that has to be a part of this whole thing. How difficult is that? And I would like you to kind of speak to the, uh, if you can, how are the Jewish scholars receiving your work? I'm sure there's a few raised out eyebrows in that community. Yeah, well, that's that's quite a, a lot to deal with. Uh, thanks, Jeff. Um, <laughs> The, uh, <laughs> you know, lots of Jewish scholars today aren't doing what I'm trying to do. That is to get back to the ancient Near Eastern world. Just like many Christian interpreters, they're interested in our world today and how the Bible speaks into our world. I'm interested in that, too. But in my approach, we have to start with understanding the ancient world. Exactly. And the. See, if we don't do that, some people say, I just want to read the Bible as it is. You're making it complicated. Right. You're making it difficult. Why are you doing this? I'm just I've heard that. read my Bible as it is. Yeah. The problem is, reading the Bible as it is only means that you're reading it through your own cultural lenses, which yes. is not healthy. Right. And so the idea that we can just read it as it is and get everything there is, uh, you know, some people say, well, the reformers tried to make it so everyone could understand the Bible. You know, every every child, every common person. Could, well, yeah, that was in their own language. Right. Reformers never thought that every child could be a competent exegete in the original languages of Hebrew and Greek. And so I think we have to recognize that it does take some work. But see, that work. For, for centuries and centuries, since the beginning of Christianity, we couldn't do that work because we didn't have access to the ancient world. It's only in the last century that we've had that access to the ancient world that allows us to get those windows, those glimpses into how people thought back then. And gradually, resources are being developed so, so any reader can have that access. Um, shameless promotion, the... NIV Cultural Background Study Bible just was published a few months ago. I was the general editor for the Old Testament, Craig Keener for the New Testament. And that's a, a study Bible that anyone can use. And the notes are entirely getting them into the ancient world to help them understand it. Wow, that's great. Okay, could, could you repeat that? Yeah, uh, that's a mouthful. <laughs> I, I want to write that down. <laughs> it's the NIV 
Cultural Background Study Bible. Good. Got it. Outstanding. So the resources are now available pretty easily um, for people to be able to benefit from the work that scholars are doing to make that ancient world accessible. Well, you mentioned, you mentioned that, the, you know, one truth, and I absolutely agree with it, is if you don't understand the Hebrew, you're already at a disadvantage. But then that's a, that's a difficult one because we've had 1,800 years of, of English. How do you work around that when you're talking to the, the average student in front of you? Well, obviously it has its challenges. Of course, we believe that the Bible in translation is still sufficiently capable of delivering reliable message of God on the whole, across mm -hmm. the spectrum. Um, but that doesn't mean that there won't be particular passages that are extremely challenging, even to Hebrew experts. I mean, there are, there are numerous words in the Hebrew Bible that no Hebrew expert today knows what that word means. And so, so we have those challenges, and we have to recognize them. Yeah, I think I think of uh, the Tsinor, the you know the what do you call it <laughs> in uh, in, in the tunnel, the Tsinor. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I mean that's that's one of those that nobody really can get their hands around what it actually means. Um, I appreciate the the cultural thing. This has just really transformed my life. I, I right now I'm writing a book. Um, it's actually on the it's called the Temple Revealed in the Garden. And I'm trying to do it sort of as a fictional account because it's a way that I can insert a lot of information without having to cite sources. <laughs> but but I, I, you know, I was thinking, I yeah, <laughs> I'm cheating, but it's okay. Um, so I was thinking about the, the story, you know, where Adam is created from the dust of the earth and the breath of life was blown into the nostrils. And I, when I was reading about the pharaohs, when they were sort of um, anointing their underlings, uh, he would blow, he was called the heir of all noses, which, and he blew his breath into his, the ones he was going to anoint. And I, it's that kind of stuff. I was so fascinated by that. You know, uh, we find this all over the place. It's just the cultural backdrop is so important. You're, you're absolutely right. The imagery that they use, the metaphors, the, just the concepts in every way are, are so important for understanding what's going on. Amen. Jeff, I think you had another question. Didn't well, you? I, I, as, as we're starting to talk about the, uh, the temple, um, I'm just kind of curious, Professor Walton, uh, when you had this moment in class, because I know exactly what you were talking about, um, where the whole thing was just peeled away, how do you see the Genesis account, the first chapter? Well, as I said, I think it's a, it's a home story. It's talking about how God has ordered the cosmos to be sacred space, to be a place where he wants to dwell. And so chapter one is telling us, it's like the, um, it's telling us about the identity of the cosmos. But here's the example I've been using. Okay, um, you know, I teach at Wheaton Grad School, and we've been around for about 60 years, the graduate school, college much longer. And the graduate school, you know, kind of did its thing year after year. And a couple of years ago, people said, 
hey, you know, we don't have a vision statement for the grad school. And so, of course, they made committees and they had meetings and they, you know, tried out all the wording and things like that. And finally, after a year, year and a half, here we have it, the vision statement of the grad school and banners and, you know, the, the whole works. And uh, and so then we had a vision statement. Now, if you ask the question, OK, the next day, what changed? Well, at one level, you say nothing. We still taught the same classes. We had the same curriculum, had the same students, had the same faculty, operations, day by day. Nothing changed. But at another level, everything changed. Because now we looked at all those things we did and we said, and this is what it's all heading toward. This is what it's all working at. And so the vision statement gives us identity and purpose and focus. Now, I think about Genesis 1, then, as the vision statement for the cosmos. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, nothing changed in how it was operating, but everything changed because now you can understand what the cosmos is and what its vision and purpose and focus is all about. And that's all about God coming here to live. And he makes it work for us, function for us, because he didn't need it. He makes it work for us, but it's his place. So, welcome to God's bed and breakfast. Yeah. <laughs> Dina, you uh, you wanted to talk about Adam as a real historical person. I, I'll let you well, go ahead and pick that up there. Um, so, I know you, uh, Dr. Walton, you've talked about Adam, because people always ask this type of question. So, yes, he's a real historical person. Um, he's also a representation of mankind. But also, uh, you call him an archety- archetypal figure. So I don't know if our, our audience is familiar with that. Could you, could you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, uh, you know, it's really tough sometimes to find exactly the right word to, to be uh, clear and helpful. Uh, let, me, let me start with an example that maybe will, will get us on the right foot. Okay. I, I was on the Internet looking at some stuff, uh, you know, a couple months ago, and I ran into a place where someone was interviewing second graders and posed the question, what are mothers made of? <laughs> now, the, the little girl that answers the question said, mothers are made of angel wings and clouds and string. And it's really interesting that even a second grader picked up the idea that they weren't talking about the biological origins of her mother. Right. They were talking about what mother is all about. And right. it's, it's funny that her immediate response was to start to name ingredients that uh, captured the nature of mothership, <laughs> if I yeah. can say that, right? And that's yeah. what an archetype is. Okay. And so the idea that what, what is it that humanity is really all about? Archetype reflects the identity of the, the group, the nature of the group. And likewise... Just as that little girl picked certain ingredients to convey the important aspects, so the Bible talks about ingredients. And it's the the dust of the earth, not clay, dust of the earth, and the side of man being used to form woman. And in that way, again, it's very much like the ancient Near East, because every time in the ancient Near East they talk about kind of humanity getting going, they talk about ingredients, and every account uses different ingredients, 
just like every kid that they interviewed about mothers probably would have picked out different ingredients. Sure. But all of them are to convey, what's this really all about? And so in that sense, when I talk about archetype, I'm talking about human identity and how we understand it. And so that's especially in the New Testament. I mean, how does that develop in the New Testament? Um, Well, in the New Testament, Paul is also interested in archetypes because Jesus is an archetype. The last Adam, that's an archetypal designation. First Adam, that's an archetypal designation. So what is humanity all about? How we've got a problem and how God has provided uh, to solve that problem for humanity. You know, we always have to remember that they're, they're very community and corporate uh, oriented in the ancient world, not right. individualistic. Yeah, I think that's really key. Uh, so sort of along that line, one of my colleagues asked how you interpret uh, the new restored temple. So I don't know, maybe what does that look like in the New Testament and maybe uh, connected a bit to Revelation? We all see Revelation as a temple text and Perhaps that's speaking to the new restored temple. What's your take on that? Well, um, first of all, of course, in in most of the New Testament, the idea is that Jesus is the temple. Jesus presents himself that way in the Gospels. And my colleague Nick Perrin has written a book on that regard, Jesus as the temple. Then, of course, we get to Paul post-Pentecost, and we are the temple. Um, And so God dwells within his people corporately and individually. And so we are the temple. When you get to Revelation and you get to new creation in chapter 21, there, intriguingly, it says there is no temple. And that might cause us to say, wait, what? There's no temple? But it follows up right after that and says, because God is there everywhere. And the idea is that a temple tends to set up boundaries for sacred space. Right. And in new creation, there are no boundaries. God is there. And so there is no temple. So it is a temple text, but there is no temple. (laughs) Yeah. The idea of temple text is that it talks about God's presence. God's presence is the overarching theme from Genesis 1 all the way through, through the Old Testament tabernacle and temple, through the New Testament incarnation and Pentecost and into new creation, God's presence is the issue, and that's why I like to call it an Emmanuel theology, God with us. Okay. Well, it made me think, you know, the temple was that, what you're describing was sort of that point between heaven and earth. And in a way, it kind of acted as a curtain, I guess you could say. So it just occurred to me, I mean, if you, as Yeshua, we call him Yeshua, as the temple, was that point, that mediating point between heaven and earth to bring those two spheres together? Um, we're, I'm, that's kind of my area, temple, temple mm-hmm. theology. I'm kind of fascinated by that. So, well, anything? certainly, certainly Yeshua functions to bridge the gap and to bring those those realms together. But also, I mean, added to that, uh, Yeshua is temple because it's. Because of incarnation. This is God right. dwelling among us in the flesh. Right. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that idea of God's presence in the incarnate Christ is important. Amen. 
Okay, well, I have one more question here, and then I'll hand it back to you, Jeff, because I have to ask this one. (laughs) Absolutely. So, you know, there's a big disagreement over whether there was one or two trees in the garden. And so I I know in your your book you identify the tree of the knowledge as the tree of wisdom. And I really, I love uh, Ephraim the Syrian, he's one of my favorites, said that the tree of wisdom was like the veil of the temple, and the tree of life was like the Holy of Holies. I just, I love that picture. So can you elaborate on that? Or, and what's your view? One or two? Uh, I guess I'm still a two tree guy. Okay. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, in those terms, it seems to me that I know it talks about a tree in the middle of the garden, but it still seems like it talks about very different functions. We could talk about how wisdom and life are connected. Um, and they are, they're associated, but especially they're associated because they both find their source in God. And that's the point of the trees in the garden. You know, some people like to think of them as symbolic trees, uh, others as literal trees. And, you know, that conversation goes on and on. Uh, But the fact is, no matter which way you come at it, the trees represent something that is only found in the presence of God and from God as its source. And in the end, I think that's the important thing. Well, so what are the possible, I mean, in my mind, you know, every everything requires male and female to produce life. And so is it possible these trees could represent male and female? Uh, I see the menorah as maybe the tree of life, perhaps the feminine, and perhaps the Ark of the Covenant representing the tree of the knowledge. I don't know. That's just sort of mystical stuff. But I do think everything requires a male and female. So do you think there's a possibility there? Um, you know, on those kinds of things, my basic approach is if the text doesn't give me that connection, I don't know. Now, okay. it doesn't mean it's not that, but, it, I, you know, I've got to try to to track with what the text is doing instead of trying to uh, enhance or embellish or, you know, on stuff that the, the text doesn't talk about. So okay. that's one of the disciplines I I try to assert on myself um, to try to stick with the text rather than trying to find those kind of additional uh, insights. Okay. So that's what I can do when I write a fictional account. (laughs) I get to add that stuff in. There is that. Yeah. (laughs) Well, speaking, speaking of the garden, I mean, the garden of Eden, do you, what do you see the garden of Eden as? And if, if it is a temple, if we if we were to conclude that it is a temple or even uh, speculate, what do you see Adam's role as being? Okay. Um, first of all, I would differentiate, because I think the text does, between Eden and the garden. Yes. Eden is the place of God's presence. It says that water flows from Eden and waters the garden. So the garden adjoins Eden. So Eden, that's why it's the Garden of Eden. It adjoins Eden. Eden is the place of God's presence, which gives it that sacred space, temple-like kind of thing. The garden adjoins it, which is typical in the ancient world. There were gardens adjoining temples and palaces and things of that sort. So Adam and Eve are serving, in my interpretation, as priests in the sacred space of the garden which is adjoining the presence of God in Eden. Now, what are they doing as priests? Is that your question? No, I, the fact that you 
the fact that you and I agreed that they were priests, which I had never heard that ever mm-hmm. until I started reading your books. And I agree with that completely. I, that was revealed to me 10 years ago that they were priests. They're in a sacred place doing. I like how in your book you use the, um, the company analogy. Mm-hmm. They've got a job. They're expected to perform. And everything is being set up for the owner to come and take his seat in the office. And therefore, they have a function. Mm-hmm. And I agree with you when you say priest. So that, that really answers my question. I, I don't know exactly what they were supposed to do, but I do believe that it follows the pattern of being appointed to do something. Right. And I think we can, we can even flesh that out a little more because usually we think of priests as either clergy, if we're thinking in our modern context, or if we think about Israel, we think of, oh, they're the ones who offered the sacrifice. But wait, they didn't need sacrifices in the garden because there was no sin. Well, Remember, sacrifices are not just about sin. Right. Sacrifices are used to praise God, to honor God, etc., etc. But furthermore, offering sacrifice was only one of the many things the priests did, and the priest's main role was to be the guardian of sacred space. You would say, what are they guarding against? There's no sin. But there is non-order. The garden is the center of order. There is an outside the garden, which is less order, And the idea is that order is to be expanded, not compromised. And therefore, as priests, they're responsible for not only maintaining the order of the garden, but also expanding the order of the garden. So it goes way beyond the concept of sacrifice and sin. Well, speaking of order and what goes on around them, what, what are your thoughts about the world that Adam and Eve lived in? Well, again, it was a world that had been what I term optimally ordered. That's the word good in Genesis 1. It was good. It was good. It was good. That means it was sufficiently ordered to work. But at the same time, people are made in the image of God, which means they're going to work alongside of him in the continuing process of bringing further order, subdue and rule, for instance. And so... There's this this center of order where God's presence is that's centered in Eden and the garden that adjoins it. But outside of that, there is still non-order. And so in that sense, that world is still a world that's awaiting the ordering process. When people sin, of course, that whole ordering process is, is now not what it was supposed to be. And so therefore, the world is remains in an unordered, non-ordered state, and it groans. That's what I think that means, that it's it's not where it ought to be. And people who are supposed to be engaged with God to do that, that whole thing has been thrown off the tracks. Well, that's the world we live in today. Yes. Not, not much has changed. <laughs> Dina. Yeah, those are kind of my my two questions, so I'm going to take a little different tack here. So, Dr. Walton, do you think there's any possibility that Adam, his vocation initially was perhaps king and high priest? I I Just in the Hebrew in Genesis, um, I just had noticed this one time. It says God took the man, and the Hebrew word that's used there, it it doesn't say put him in the garden, but it it says it rested him in the garden, the, the word nach. Caused him to rest, yes. Yeah. So I saw king language, you know, temple, finished, dedication, king enthroned kind of thing. 
Well, certainly kings are supposed to be engaged in bringing order, um, but the language there, I think, is more priestly than it is kingly, but certainly rest can be connected to rule. And so I I don't feel like I have to remove that from the picture. More of the kingly language is in chapter one with subdue and rule. That's right. kind of kingly type language. So I think Adam is in both roles. And okay. it can, you know, the text um, can kind of open up one or the other as it will. So in that, and then I'll just, I'll, this will be my last one here. But everyone always asks, you know, what's the serpent doing inside the sacred space? <laughs> well, again, if we read the serpent in the context of ancient Israel, they never come up with the idea that it's Satan or the devil or something right. of that sort. Um, and so when we ask the question, okay, if it's if they weren't thinking of it as Satan or the devil, what were they thinking of it as? And this was in my Adam and Eve book uh, right. where I spent some time on it, that basically I think they would have considered it what in the ancient world were called chaos creatures, which are morally neutral. They're just troublemakers. Um, and just like we wouldn't think of a, a hurricane or a tornado having an evil will, uh, these chaos creatures don't have an evil will, but they they cause havoc um, just because they are associated with non-order. So in that sense, the serpent is a catalyst. And therefore, in the context of Genesis, and I want to make sure that qualification is clear, in the context of Genesis, um, it's not as important a character as it comes to be understood in later theology. Okay. Go ahead, Jeff. Well, I, you know, just to, just to add to that, we have to keep in mind, too, that Moses is giving an account to exactly. people that are 2,000 years down the road. So the can has been kicked roughly 2,000 years down the road, and he's using language that they would be familiar with. And, of course, they would have identified serpent as as a pharaoh. They would have seen it as something evil or bad or horrible. Adam wouldn't have the had these serpent concepts imagery certainly is relative as yes. is, is relevant to the Egyptian context. And you're right, Moses is is conveying the account in ways that would be meaningful to an Israelite audience of his time. If we ask about the cultural background of the serpent, that's a good question when it's dealing with Moses. It doesn't mean anything if you're dealing with Adam and Eve. There is no cultural background there. Right, right. Right, that's exactly right. Uh, And that's, you know, I actually broached that scenario to people, and I I learned this from uh, Professor Skip Moen. But, uh, you know, it just, it it helped me to understand that, my goodness, when we're talking about Adam and Eve, we have to recognize that Moses' audience is not Adam and Eve. And that is almost a like a uh, a deer in the headlight moment for a lot of believers today because we don't see the Bible from that lens. We're seeing Moses in the garden giving an account of something that he was never there, but we don't make that connection. How, what happens, and I, I kind of want to find out what you're thinking is on this, when a student or, or someone gets this, what happens to their concepts? What have you seen over the years? Well, I think it, it's the beginning of a whole process that revolutionizes how people view the Bible and how they think about what they read there, um, because you start reading it through a different lens. 
And that's important. I mean, just to recognize that all through the Bible, no matter who we're talking about, even though it's talking about real people, we are encountering those real people as literary characters. And all we've got is what the narrator has given us of those real people, but he's given them to us as literary characters. And it's, it's not so important what the people are doing. It's important what the narrator is doing with the people and with what God is doing through the people. That's where the power of the Bible's message is. What the narrator is doing, because there's where the inspiration is, and what God is doing, because that's where the whole plans and purposes of God come together. You so know, I just, I just looked at the time. Just, well, yeah. <laughs> we're running out of time, Jeff. <laughs> yeah, we're out of time. Uh, Professor Walton, uh, I'm going to let Dina close out the show, but I want to personally thank you for taking the time. It seems like we've been talking for 10 minutes, and it's already been 50 minutes. Uh, thank you, sir, for coming on, uh, returning to Eden with us. We, we are actually pursuing a lot of your material on this broadcast. Well, it's my pleasure. What a privilege to, to chat with you. Great conversation. Yes, thanks. Yeah. And, and uh, I want to thank you, too, for taking time out of your busy life, I'm sure. And I want to thank you for writing books in a, an easy and engaging style. Um, I really appreciate that, that you're willing to kind of serve as a bridge between the academic world and the regular folks. Yes. Yes. You know, there's, there's a lot of incredible scholarship, but it gets buried in, in the world of what I call academies. <laughs> it's yeah. so hard to understand. Well, I'm glad it's working. Uh, that, thanks for that encouragement. I'm glad it's working. Oh, yeah. So thanks again. Um, bless you, and um, I hope we can do this again sometime. Absolutely. Thank you, Professor Walton. All right. Hey. Shalom. 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 Bye-bye. <laughs>